Good day to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe we are at the end of the week, and I know that all of you are looking forward to the um, upcoming weekend. You know, I heard this morning from my wife that uh, Prince Philip had passed away, and while he lived to be age 99, you know, he lived a remarkable life. You know, none of us can live forever, but knowing how much I appreciate history and enjoy learning about it, I often now think to myself just how much Prince Philip saw in his lifetime and just how faithful of a companion he was uh, to Queen Elizabeth. Of course, no marriage is perfect, whether it's in the royal family or just everyday ordinary people, but Prince Philip and uh, Queen Elizabeth really did have a lot of um, love and respect for one another. And he stood um, by her side um, through the most uh, exciting and times and also through the most uh, challenging of times. But uh, he was always by her side. And, um, you know, Prince Philip, uh, you know, I hope he uh, is resting in peace. But uh, it is uh, sad on one hand to see someone who um, has been around for so long um, they finally leave, but you think about the legacy they've uh, left behind. Of course, you know, I'm not a royal family expert, uh, although I do know a fair amount of history, especially through having watched the TV series The Crown on Netflix. But um, I do know that uh, Prince Philip um, shared the same values that Queen Elizabeth herself has shared in terms of um, duty to country and uh, putting uh, country first and ensuring that um, England um, is always um, protected, not just at home, but abroad. After all, uh, we must remember that Queen Elizabeth's uncle, uh, who was Edward VIII, uh, abdicated in 1936, and it did create a constitutional crisis in the monarchy. And uh, Queen Elizabeth, around the time she got coronated, had said that she would never um, leave her post. And, you know, she's been at the helm now for almost 70 years. I think it's fair to say that she will remain queen until the day she dies. But Prince Philip, on the other hand, what a very uh, remarkable man he was. So let's uh, keep our thoughts and prayers with the royal family. But I also can point out that uh, this uh, podcast on Brilliant Beacons, A History of the American Lighthouse, has been a phenomenal uh, series. Today is our last episode of Eric Dolan's book. So what are we going to be discussing that we have not discussed from the previous 12 episodes? We're going to discuss about the new keepers. And we're going to find out exactly how the new keepers evolved, especially as the uh, 20th century. Um, not just so much how the 20th century comes about, but how the 20th century uh, moves past World War I starting into the late 1930s, right before World War I, World War II rather, breaks out. But in the years after World War II, how lighthouses are transformed. They are transformed, we'll find out that they are transformed in ways that we didn't expect for them to be so. We will also learn that many became abandoned, but at the same time we will learn that people came through when it mattered most 
to save many of America's remaining brilliant beacons that are still shining. Not just, and what I mean by shining is not shining in the sense, well, that yes, they're shining for the ships that are coming in and out of harbors, but they're shining because they are standing proof that they have withered the test of time through good and bad circumstances. So let's fasten our seatbelts and get ready to learn about the new keepers. What's significant about May 5th, or May 15th, rather, 1939? President Franklin Roosevelt signed a joint resolution of Congress making the week of August 7th, 1939, Lighthouse Week. Basically, it's the 150th anniversary, August 7th would be, of when uh, the first Congress passed the Lighthouse Act on August 7th of 1789 that was signed into law by then-President George Washington. It would become a nationwide celebratory event where Americans everywhere could show their appreciation for all sacrifice, sacrifices made by the Lighthouse Establishment since 1789. While all of this sounds terrific, However, before August 7th, 1939 rolls around, Congress does something else, and it is questionable. It would make many people in the Lighthouse Service wonder if it's even worth celebrating Lighthouse Week. Congress passed FDR's Reorganization Plan, Part 2, on July 1st, 1939, three days before we are scheduled to celebrate our 163rd anniversary or birthday as an independent nation. This uh, reorganization plan broke up the Lighthouse Service without any proper formality, in other words, without any proper notification ahead of time to say to the employees that, hey, look, we need to find uh, different ways to save money, but at the same time, we're also going to see to it that all of you still have a job somewhere in the government that would involve um, either what you're doing or in another capacity where you're still using your many of your uh, unique talents. So the, the duties that the um, lighthouse keepers themselves had, along with other um, we call it, along with other jobs, like, you know, that of assistant lighthouse keeper, those employees, including their duties, were transferred to the U.S. Coast Guard. And what do you know that the U.S. Coast Guard, for those of you who don't know, that institution uh, was either established in 1789 or 1790, not far after the Lighthouse Act was passed. And for a number of years, the U.S. Coast Guard fell under the Department of Transportation it only came under the Department of Defense during a time of war, but of course when 9-11 happened, or I should say September 11th, 2001, the Coast Guard fell under uh, Department of Homeland Security. So that was not the first time, and it may not be the last time, where there will be major uh, governmental um, restructuring where departments that were either independent from other departments fall under another uh, department's um, jurisdiction. Even the Secret Service at one time uh, fell under the Department of Treasury, but now, but now, 20 years after 9-11 happened, the Secret Service still 
remains under the Department of Homeland Security's jurisdiction. So many employees from the Lighthouse Service saw this reorganization as a shock, considering that celebration festivities weren't far off, and in the end, some of the keepers resigned. In other words, they just didn't see to it that being that it, it just didn't they just didn't see that the job was maybe no longer worth it knowing that they were going to be having to uh, be relocated to another jurisdiction that they just weren't familiar with. On the other hand, um, half of the um, employees chose to remain civilians, whereas the rest joined the military ranks within the U.S. Coast Guard, becoming chief or first-class petty officers. So it is fair to say that you could have either had, you know, a third of each um, segment stay um, or remain in one position or just completely retire. But lighthouses will be in for another... Um, I don't know if surprise is the right word. I don't know if rude awakening is the right word, but they will be, um, their presence and their um, value, not just as a structure, but as a brilliant beacon, will be tested again in the aftermath of December 7th, 1941. I think all of us know what happened on December 7th, 1941. How about Pearl Harbor? The Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. FDR said December 7th, 1941, a day that will forever live in infamy. For my grandparents, Pearl Harbor was like the equivalent of a 9-11. Just like for my parents when President Kennedy was assassinated, it was their 9-11. So, yes, America's lighthouses were in fact impact impacted by the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, in large part because... We didn't know what was going to be um, coming afterwards. In other words, okay, if the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, who's not to say that there could be another air fleet of Japanese planes wanting to attack a military base or two on the East Coast or elsewhere along the Pacific Coast, ranging from Washington State down to uh, California? So, yes, our national security right here at this time is in... Um, grave danger. So many lighthouses were either blocked, blackened out or dimmed, but keepers themselves participated in coastal patrols where they remained on the lookout for enemy ships, planes to submarines. Troops and artillery were deployed at some lighthouses to guard against invasion. So, you know, Okay, yes, it, only one attack happened, being at Pearl Harbor, but in the aftermath of this attack, we don't, we just can't sit back and think, oh, well, it just happened in one spot. So, uh, places along the East Coast and along around Washington State, Oregon, and California, they're all going to be fine. No, we can't assume anything. So, in response to what happened, it's a good thing that we had all this uh, prepared because um, had we not done this, who's not to say that? Uh, America's uh, brilliant beacons on the mainland would have, uh, in fact, faced possible attack. Luckily, though, as World War II came to an end, lighthouses resumed to primary duties as coastal threats diminished.
Now, World War II ends in 1945. The U.S. Coast Guard, in the years after 1945, build fewer and fewer newer lighthouses. So this is also a time where the government is looking at uh, consolidating. In other words, you know, yes, FDR's legislation, you know, transfers duties over to the Coast Guard, but the Coast Guard's got to think to themselves, hey, look, where should we be spending our money? Do we need more new lighthouses? Well, the last new lighthouse, per historical records, in the United States that was built, the last new one that was built, you'd have to go back to 1962 when President when John F. Kennedy was uh, President of the United States. That's also the same year that the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis took place, 13 days, that pretty much um, put the whole world on alert. And had it not been for uh, Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev to sit down and work out a compromise, it also involved Fidel Castro, had they all not sat down and talked things out like normal people ought to, we would have had a nuclear war. And it was bad enough that an atomic bomb was dropped on um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan, in 1945. I can't imagine what nuclear warfare would have looked like, but it would have been the end of civilization as we know it. So, a new lighthouse was built in the year 1962, the Charleston Lighthouse in Charleston, South Carolina. It, it's uh, located on Sullivan's Island, pretty much around the north side of the entrance to the Charleston Harbor. It replaced the Morris Island Lighthouse, which had been threatened by erosion. This uh, lighthouse, being the Charleston Lighthouse, is 140 feet tall. And how ironic that it is the only lighthouse in the United States with an elevator and air conditioning. You know, it's easy to think, folks, that as the 20th century evolved, that, that the uh, lighthouses that had been built from the 19th century were installed with air, conditioning, with air conditioners. That is wishful thinking, but, um, but I hate to tell you this, folks, that uh, lighthouses did not have air conditioners. They didn't have uh, heaters either. I remember my father telling me once that he that his folks did not get air conditioning in their home until he was about the age of 15 or 16. And when when a family did get an AC um, installed in their home, that was major news along the street because pe because the rest of the the neighbors wanted to come see the newest uh, top of the line or maybe not so much top-of-the-line, but state-of-the-art uh, equipment that had been put into their neighbor's home. So let's not take these things for granted, because there are places in the world that would, or rather countries in the world, who do not have access to AC, um, to ACs and heater units like we do here in America. So let's keep that in mind. But um, what also made this... Um, Lighthouse being the Charleston Lighthouse, even more unique was that it had carbon arc lamps, which produced 28 million candle power. It became one of the brightest lighthouses in the world. And what made things all the more challenging and difficult was that the keepers themselves had to wear asbestos welding suits. 
for protection before entering the lantern room. However, over time, through concern of the locals in Charleston and outside the city, the light's power got reduced to only one and a half million candle power, which can be seen 27 miles out to sea. That still is one heck of a bright light, especially knowing that you can still see that light 27 miles away from entrance to the harbor. So as the 1940s um, continued to move on after World War II going into the 1950s and at the start of the 1960s, there are more and more advanced forms of technology that are being introduced that, um, that over time will lead to doing away with some lighthouses. Does anybody want to know what Shoran and Loran each stand for? That's spelled S-H-O-R-A-N, Shoran, whereas Loran, L-O-R-A-N. Shoran is short-range navigation, whereas Loran is long-range navigation. Each became new advances in radar technology, which gave vessels better ways to locate their positions while navigating the coast which led to doing away with some lighthouses. So here, for years, mariners were dependent upon lighthouses as their guiding light to um, get to where they needed to be. Or not just so much their final destination, but where they needed to uh, stay in, in terms of the confines of the water. Because uh, if you got too close to... Uh, the coast or the shoreline, you run aground. So the presence of a lighthouse alone is going to help keep you where you need to be so that you don't get too close to the shoreline. But even these new radar um, advances, yes, um, will certainly help um, ships or vessels navigate their positions better, but it just means that lighthouses are no longer needed. This is also a way of saving money, and while yes, it may look great on paper, it does lose its luster for those whom have um, spent their, their lives manning lighthouses and didn't know anything else different. So yes, technology here does have its advantages, but it also has its disadvantages where people, in many instances, may not be needed after all. Many decommissioned lighthouses were either demolished, whereas others got abandoned. On the other hand, some got sold to private individuals or were transferred to local governments, including federal agencies like the National Park Service. In 1946, the year after World War II ended, there were 468 U.S. lighthouses that were in operation not just so much an operation, but had at least one keeper. By the mid-1960s, the number fell to around just 300. So that's quite um, a rapid decline of almost 170 lighthouses that um, no longer needed uh, people to um, man the facilities. You know, automation became a big uh, technological advance uh, because, you know, automation itself replaced a lot of um, people 
you know, it doesn't, it's not cheap to uh, light a lighthouse under automation, but it turns out that the savings were beneficial for the Coast Guard. They probably saved maybe at best $50,000 with automation. So if it means saving money, it is a good thing. But what about those whom have spent so many years working in the lighthouse industry? Well, you know, yes, I know they have a story to tell. And yes, they shouldn't be forgotten. And while, yes, many of them did go on to work for the Coast Guard, but it is also fair to say that while automation is doing a great thing, what about the lighthouse structures themselves? You know, what about the Coast Guard? Shouldn't the Coast Guard be doing more than just um, automating the lighthouses? I would think so, but at the same time, you know, this is a big question right here where we have to ask ourselves. How much should be expected of a governmental agency to um, look over or, be a, or um, have responsibilities of? In other words, yes, we would want our governmental agencies to be responsible for doing X, Y, and Z. But at the same time, maybe it's fair to say that government can't do everything. You know, yes, we have a National Park Service, which is great, that, you know, can offer many things that are of historical significance. But let me ask you this, folks. When, when you go to Colonial Williamsburg, when you go to Monticello, when you go to Mount Vernon, when you go to um, Montpelier, James Madison's home, Ashlawn Highland, James Monroe's home, or uh, Poplar Forest, Thomas Jefferson's getaway home. When you go to those homes, does the federal government own those homes? No. They're all owned by private organizations. Monticello, however, for example, was, was run by the uh, Levy family, a uh, well-to-do Jewish family that saved the home from... Uh, from virtual destruction. Uh, Uriah Levy uh, bought the home in 1834, eight years after Thomas Jefferson died, and his uh, nephew, Jefferson Monroe Levy, lived there from 1879 up until his death in 1924. Had it not been for this family, uh, Monticello would have been destroyed because uh, in the years after Jefferson died, um, people vandalized the home. Um, if you read the book Saving Monticello or a book about the Levy family, you will get an extreme appreciation for, for what this family did in restoring Monticello as best as they could when Jefferson was there. But of course, it was a private home for, for pretty much um, well over, say, well over 30 years um, and so forth. But uh, but not to get off track or anything, but what I'm trying to say, though, is that, uh, long story short with Monticello, it's run by the uh, Monticello uh, Foundation or the Thomas Jefferson Foundation. But if the federal government uh, took control of all the historic, famous historic um, places like Colonial Williamsburg, Monticello, Mount Vernon, I don't know how the federal government could um, even operate. So this is where private organizations have to come in and step up to the plate and say, hey, if we're this concerned about a home's existence, then we need to do something about it. Otherwise, it's going to get demolished and a piece of history will no longer stand uh, the test of time. 
Uh, and it was the same way with Thomas Jefferson's home, uh, getaway home, Poplar Forest. Uh, I've been there in Bedford County. It had remained in private hands uh, for years after his grandson, Francis Epps, sold it in 1828. Um, the Cobbs and the Hutter families lived there. Then the uh, Watts family bought it in the late 1940s. Then a, a physician uh, bought the home in the late 1970s, but didn't live there very long. And then after he left, the home stood dormant for about five years to where um, to where the people of Bedford County became so worried that the home was going to be destroyed. And they um, got enough petitions to uh, save the home, and the house is still there. About 500 of acres of the original estate is still there. Uh, because I do believe Poplar Forest was probably about 1,500 acres when Jefferson lived there. But there again, folks, if the people of um, Bedford County had not come to the aid of, um, had not come together to save Jefferson's getaway home, that would have been another piece of historic, um, it would have been another sad piece of history that was, um, that was, t that would have been taken away, not only for people at that time, but in the future. So the bottom line is this, folks, with lighthouses, lighthouses, their structures became very vulnerable without keepers on site to care for them. But starting in the mid-1960s and into the present day, nonprofit and government organizations would emerge onto the scene where they became the new keepers, or what we might think of as stewards, whose focuses or concentrations revolved around saving America's brilliant beacons from virtual destruction. One of the first things Congress did in 1966 was that it passed the National Historic Preservation Act, which focused attention on preserving America's historic significant sites like neglected lighthouses. So I'll give you two, two good examples of where, um, of where two states... Uh, came to, uh, banded together, individually that is, where people per each of these states banded together to save um, lighthouses. How about, for starters, the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum located in St. Michael's, Maryland. If any of you don't know what Chesapeake means, I can tell you what it means. It means abundance of shellfish. That's what the um, Powhatan uh, Confederacy uh, before... Um, the English arrived in 1607. That's what they referred to the Chesapeake region as, abundance of shellfish. Well, the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum uh, came to the rescue of many lighthouses along the Maryland eastern shore, most notably the Hooper Strait Lighthouse. This lighthouse was on the verge, on the verge of being demolished by a uh, contractor. The museum bought the structure from a demolition contractor for $1,000. The new owners went about cutting this lighthouse into two, and by doing so, they placed each piece on a barge and transported them 60 miles to St. Michael's, where the lighthouse got put back together. And what do you know? It has become a very primary, become a very popular attraction. So there you have it, folks. You have people who care enough about something that they don't want to see it be destroyed. So it just takes the right people. It, it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of passion. If you care enough about something that much, you will do anything there is in your power to see to it that something gets saved.
from outsiders who, yes, their intentions could mean well, but at the same time, they may not have the same value of about something in terms of a structure like you do. Then we have what's called the Rose Island Lighthouse, located in Newport, Rhode Island, that was the home to the Vanderbilt family, most notably Cornelius Vanderbilt's. The lighthouse itself dated back to 1870. Now, when I think of 1870, that's the start of the um, Gilded Age that lasted for about 45 years from 1870 up until uh, 1915, um, just before America gets involved in World War One. And of course, when I think of Newport, Rhode Island, I think of all the mansions um, lined up along the coast of the Atlantic Ocean, um, where the most well-to-do of people have their summer homes. Kind of like how when my wife and I visited the Thousand Islands in New York State uh, this past summer, how that region um, had, was truly the first getaway um, destination resort for America's um, rich and elite. And I'm sure over a, over a short period of time, Newport, Rhode Island, followed in the footsteps of the Thousand Islands. But the Rose Island structure, like I said, dates back to 1870. However, the U.S. Coast Guard decommissioned the lighthouse in 1970, and it stood dormant for 14 years. So let's move forward to 1984. The Rose Island Lighthouse Foundation was established to restore the structure. Numerous amounts of support over eight years going into 1992 at a cost of $1.2 million dollars helped restore the lighthouse to its 1912 appearance when the Vanderbilts had originally purchased it. You take a lot of, you take a lot of um, perseverance there, folks, and this was without federal government money, which made it even more spectacular. And the same for um, the Hooper Strait Lighthouse in St. Michael's, Maryland. Yes, government should help, but at the same time, government may not always be able to help. And this is where private organizations have to step up to the plate and save structures that that mean so much to them that by saving them, they could also be relieving the federal government of any unnecessary um, burdens. After all, folks, you know, the federal government can't, um, you know, the government can't do everything, although it should try to do as much as it can, but it can't be everything to everybody. On the other hand, I do believe that our forefathers, like George Washington, who lived at Mount Vernon, Thomas Jefferson at Monticello, I believe they would be very happy to know that their homes have been, that their homes were saved, and that their homes have been open to the public for some time where people, for years, where people have been able to appreciate what those homes stood for. After all, the Mount Vernon Ladies Association was the first organization that came to the rescue of a historic home, being that of George Washington's in 1858 when the organization was established. Here's another unique, here's something else that I think is worth pointing out. Let's focus on the state of Maine right here. They established uh, a program in 1996 but it was established through uh, federal legislation. It was called the Maine Lights Program. The program resulted in a no-cost transfer of ownership involving 28 Maine Light stations. So in other words, you know, 
the federal government didn't ask the state to fork over money. It was basically a transfer without any money. It involved 28 main light stations, including buildings and land tied to the lighthouse from the U.S. Coast Guard to governmental and nonprofit groups' organizations. However, there, there were stipulations, and stipulations are never a bad thing. The new owners were required to maintain light stations and allow tourists to visit. The U.S. Coast Guard's duties involved protecting the lights and the fog signals, that would still remain um, as active aids for navigation purposes. The program itself relieves the U.S. Coast Guard from overspending per its own budgets. So there you have it, folks. This, without this program, we would be putting too much burden on the Coast Guard to where the Coast Guard would have to be operating in the red, meaning they, there would be a deficit. And sadly... You know, you can only deficit spend but so much, but, you know, there again, how much of a burden should the Coast Guard have if in the event, let's say they're operating in the red and they can't cover the most basic necessities to ensure that a lighthouse doesn't fall apart? So what did the Maine Lights Program inspire Congress to pass legislation-wise at the start of the 21st century? How about the National Historic Lighthouse Preservation Act of 2000? This law allowed the U.S. Coast Guard to determine which light stations no longer needed to be under their jurisdiction. Once again, it was a transfer at no cost to federal agencies, state and local governments, as well as nonprofit groups. However, light stations on the National Register of Historic Places, including ones eligible for listing, can be mentioned for transfer. So there again, um, there are still stipulations and guidelines that have to be followed. Now, of course, this book that Eric J. Dolan wrote, Being Brilliant Beacons, was written in 2016, but as he noted, in as of 2015, of course, hard to believe that was six years ago, the NHLPA, being the National Historic Lighthouse Preservation Act, had overseen 73 lighthouse transfers to government and nonprofit groups, the majority of transfers involved groups heavily focused on preservation or what we call restoration efforts. And at about that time, over that 15-year span, 41 lighthouses had been sold to the public through auctions, producing over $4 million in revenue. I'm going to throw out two good examples here, folks, one being the lowest purchase and then the highest purchase. The lowest purchase was for $10,000 being the Cleveland Harbor East Breakwater Lighthouse on Lake Erie. $10,000 doesn't seem like a lot, but for someone to be able to um, buy a lighthouse for $10,000, yeah, that is a lot of money still. And then how about we go to the highest purchase at $933,888 being the Graves Lighthouse at the entrance of Boston Harbor. I tell you, it's one thing to buy a lighthouse, but you better have the money to fork it out. Because it's one thing to own a lighthouse, but how about investing in improving the internal structures of the lighthouse as well as the external? Think about it, folks. It, like owning a lighthouse and operating it, if you're a private owner of one, it's like running your own house. 
that's how um, big of a commitment it is to own something that um, special. And yes, it is one thing to buy a lighthouse, but the maintenance costs run from hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars. So I think it's fair to say that buying a lighthouse, it's like gambling. You have to be willing to afford to... How do I say it? You better be willing to um, have the money to fork up. But at the same time, you also have to be willing to fork out money that you probably wished you didn't have to fork out just to be able to keep the structure afloat so that it will not only benefit for your purpose, but benefit the greater public if the lighthouse itself is open to the public for tourism. Well, building new lighthouses won't happen again, and it is true, folks, I don't foresee anything like that ever happening again. On the other hand, America's existing lighthouses, and I'm sure many of you are wondering, how many existing lighthouses are there in America still? The, it, the number hovers just around 700. So think about that. America's existing lighthouses being nearly 700 standing with half owned or operated, with half of them being owned or operated by various groups, are open to the public. And this has resulted in millions of visitors each year. And as I've said before, and I could say it again, no two lighthouses are alike. There are a handful of them that have small exhibits, especially, I know of one, for example, uh, the Harbor Town Lighthouse in Hilton Head Island. It wasn't always that way. Uh, when I went back to Hilton Head for the first time uh, in 2015, I was um, taken by surprise at just how much um, how much investment um, the lighthouse um, underwent. You know, for years you could go up the steps, and that was one thing. But what do you know? When you go inside on the bottom floor. You actually pay, have to pay to go up. There is a gift shop at the bottom. And as you go up each flight of steps, there is history of the island. There's also history of how the lighthouse itself got built. So even that right there is a story onto itself. Even when my wife and I went to Cape Cod, Massachusetts nine years ago at the um, lighthouse at Provincetown, each flight of steps you went up, you had... Um, towns and cities listed in the years they were founded. Even that has a story to tell right there throughout Massachusetts. So, each lighthouse, yes, has exhibits. Whether they're small, mid-size, or large, they have stories to tell. Now, if you want to go further in terms of, what do you call it, further in terms of a, a big-size museum that would have more to offer, I recommend this one because when my wife and I went to Maine seven years ago, we went as far north as uh, Rockland, which is north of Portland. The Maine Lighthouse Museum in Rockland is home to the single largest collection of lighthouse artifacts and Fresnel lenses. Remember those Fresnel lenses, folks, that Augustin Jean Fresnel um, constructed that uh, revolutionized not only lighting in Europe, but 
but would eventually uh, revolutionize lighting in America, uh, especially after <laughs> Stephen Pleasanton was forced out. Well, my wife and I visited that museum back in July of 2014, and I, and I must say that is a very, very impressive um, museum. And that's where I first learned about Fresnel lenses. I didn't know anything about them until going to Maine, so, and, it's, and more so when I read this book uh, a few years back. So how do we um, end this uh, series, folks, with our brilliant beacons? I mean, as I said earlier, there are still about 700 standing nationwide. But we shouldn't take them for granted. They have had plenty of stories to tell. After all, America's lighthouses have served her people well for three centuries, pretty much dating back to 1715 when the first one was built, being the Boston Lighthouse. But they have served her people beyond just their primary purpose in protecting mariners navigating the waters. You know, America's economy has depended upon lighthouses to ensure that cargo departs and arrives out of all ports safely. You know, it's one thing for a ship to um, run aground, but it's cargo. If water floods at the bottom of the ship, the hold where the cargo is stored is impacted. So without, without proper protocols and without proper safety measures like a lighthouse, it's fair game for all ships to have, um, to have been put in grave danger. But, the, but America's brilliant beacons have enabled her keepers to perform life-saving missions and rescues where countless lives had been saved. And of course, we discussed that from the previous uh, podcast yesterday about, um, especially like, for example, Marcus Hanna and what he did on the night of, um, on the morning of January 29th, 1885. That's just another example of where it wasn't just his act of heroism, but the presence of a lighthouse that um, detected trouble that wasn't far away. And while, yes, the captain lost his life, two o the other two crewmen, their lives were saved because of that brilliant beacon structure. For all that America's um, lives for all that America's lighthouses endured through the best and worst of times, her people returned the favor. And, and how so? Well, through restoration and preservation acts, most notably starting in the 1960s, where the public at large now visits them and walks away knowing just how valuable our nation's brilliant, our nation's brilliant beacons truly are from days past, present, and future to where they will remain national treasures for eternity. No matter where you travel, whether you go down south to Florida, to South Carolina, Tybee Island, Georgia, whether you go up north to, say, Cape May, New Jersey, up to um, Bahaba, Maine, not a Mainer, but that's how you pronounce it when you go to Maine, <laughs> or whether you go to um, Cape Cod or Boston, you will see lighthouses. Uh, Portland, Maine especially, the Portland Headlight, which is one of the most widely uh, photographed uh, lighthouses in Maine. Uh, I, I should point out, though, that many people, 
if you see a state quarter of Maine, I know it's easy to assume that it's the Portland headlight, but I will point out it's not. The reason for that is because, for one, Maine was established in 1820, and that lighthouse on the quarter is the Burnt Island Lighthouse. My wife and I visited that one seven years ago. And, um, and of course, Maine um, was a part of Massachusetts. And when the Portland Headlight was built in 1791, it was officially opened in 1791 or resurrected. It was still under Massachusetts domain. Well, I've really enjoyed um, discussing this um, book with you all. And, you know, no matter where you travel along the coast in the United States, whether it's on the Pacific coast or the Atlantic coast, you're bound, or in the Gulf of Mexico, you're bound, or, or as well as the Great Lakes, I should say, you're bound to see lighthouses. And don't take them for granted, because they have had wonderful stories to tell. Their keepers were the ones that kept them going strong, even in the darkest of times. Their keepers were the ones that made the ultimate sacrifice by saving everyday people's lives. So when we see a lighthouse, let's just be thankful that it has stood the test of time. Yes, there are those that are no longer with us, but we can still learn about them and the role they played during the duration they had. Because they too, even though they may not be around, they too at one time were brilliant beacons as well. So let's honor our America's heritage by always paying respect to our lighthouses. Thank you again for uh, listening to uh, my podcasts. And um, I don't know what I would do without all of you, but you all have been um, an amazing support factor. And I look forward to being back on the air again next when I begin a new series with you all. So um, keep on listening and keep on spreading the word. Thank you and stay safe.